Good afternoon. I guess we can get started um, now that you've all got full stomachs. Um, we're honored today to have as our luncheon speaker or post-luncheon speaker, uh, Lasik Belsarovitz. Uh, <clears throat> he's uh, an old friend of Cato and uh, he's now a professor of economics at the Warsaw School of Economics. He's uh, compiled an interesting book uh, that's a bestseller in Poland right now called uh, Discovering Freedom. It looks like the Warsaw telephone book, but it's actually a compilation of essays, uh, and it's sold over 30,000 copies, which is pretty, pretty uh, impressive. Uh, so congratulations on that. Yeah. Uh, he was a former deputy prime minister and finan uh, minister of finance in the first, first non-communist government in Poland after World War II. Uh, this is in 1989 after the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall and the emerging uh, transition economies in Eastern Europe. Uh, and most importantly, he was the chief architect of the Radical Stabilization and Transformation Program, which came to be known as shock therapy uh, in moving from the plan to the market. And what he had to do, he had to uh, he got rid of price controls. He was sort of a modern-day Earhart. Uh, he got rid of price controls. He controlled inflation. Uh, and, and Poland uh, became stabilized and had very strong economic growth. Uh, so that's a major uh, accomplishment. Uh, he also went on to become the former pres or president of the uh, National Bank of Poland in 2001. Uh, he's the author of numerous publications on economic issues. Uh, in 1992, he was awarded the Ludwig Erhard Prize, and in 1998 was named Finance Minister of the Year by Euromoney. Uh, in 2001, he was awarded the Frederick von Hayek Prize, uh, and in 2005, he received Poland's highest decoration, the Order of the White Eagle, which is a cool name, uh, <laughs> for his contribution to the system transformation. So it's nice that he's speaking in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. <clears throat> Uh, Lezik holds a PhD in economics from, and this is interesting, the Central School of Planning and Statistics. <laughs> uh, remember when he went to grad school, uh, which is all the more remarkable that he made this transformation. And it's now called the Warsaw School of Economics. I remember when I, I ran a conference for Cato in the old Soviet Union back in 1990, uh, and... Uh, they were just starting to go undergo a transition. The Soviet Union hadn't collapsed yet. And somebody came up to me, and they had a business card, and it said the, the Bureau of Central Planning or something like that. And then he had crossed out Central Planning and said the Bureau of Market Research. <laughs> uh, so I knew that was getting close to the end of the Soviet Union at that time. Uh, he's going to speak today about uh, Euro monetary problems and solutions, and also make reference uh, to, to the Fed. So please help me welcome uh, Lasik. Well, thank you very much, Jim. One comment on the kind introduction. There were many true believers in communism outside communism than in Poland, because you could love it only from the distance, not while being inside. Yes, my focus would be on euro problems and proposed solutions, but of course I will mention monetary issues. Eurozone is, after all, a monetary arrangement. Let me start with saying that I can see a huge confusion in the debate on the euro. 
And there are two main sources. First, a lot of verbiage, imprecise, imprecise terminology behind which you have wishful thinking, like fiscal union, political union, etc. Everything new has to be called union. Second, I think there is a mixture of two kinds of problems in discussing Euro. General problems, the special case of which are issues in the Eurozone, and problems which are specific to the Eurozone. The example of the first for would be the old discussion about hard packs versus flexible, and having your own monetary policy, or what are the root causes of the financial crisis, or what are the consequences of unconventional monetary policy I'm going to mention, or what is the proper fiscal policy after the crisis. These are more general issues, but they are very often mentioned in the debate, in debate on the euro, and there are some specific issues, not well isolated from the more general, like, for example, why the credit spreads of such different countries, like Germany and Greece, were almost identical until recently. Let me start with some facts, which is always advisable. Oh. There is a much talk about Euro, or Eurozone, and this masks huge variation. Aggregation is loss of information. <laughs> so, of course, this is not readable, but let me say that if you look at the gross data for Europe, European Union for 2008 until 2013, this uh, forecast, you see huge differences in economic growth. Nine countries have been growing faster in per capita terms than the US. And these countries include those uh, states with a flexible rate of exchange, like Poland, uh, Sweden, but also countries with uh, hard packs, including Germany, a member of the Eurozone, and very interesting group of countries, which I call Bell, which are the Baltics and Bulgaria. They have Euro-based currency boards, so they cannot engage in outright devaluation. They suffer huge credit boom, and as a result, the bust, but they recovered, and the cumulative growth in these countries have been faster than they in the US. On the other hand, you have a group of countries which have been lagging behind the US growth in 2000-2013. Uh, there are various countries. The one you have boom and bust economies like Greece, Portugal, Ireland, even though there's a huge variation. Ireland has been doing much better than Greece for reasons we can discuss. But there are also countries which have entered the crisis period with a very distorted economy, <clears throat> like France or Italy. And uh, as a result, they have a very slow growth. Now, what I'm going to say on the euro is based on a longer paper let me make some publicity, which I have prepared with much younger colleagues for the Lisbon Council in Brussels, amazingly a free market think tank in Brussels. And we look at the data and we run a lot of evidence which runs counter to the conventional wisdoms regarding on fiscal policy, on monetary policy, on credit growth, etc. So this is fact-based. So the first fa fact is huge variation. Don't just speak about European Union or Eurozone, look at the differences in the data and try to explain these differences. While trying to explain the differences, 
one can mention that the problem countries, uh, which include uh, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, but also Italy, but the first four countries, have developed two kinds of credit booms. <clears throat> the first one, I find it useful to distinguish be between financial to fiscal crisis, and the fiscal crisis which uh, culminate in the financial or banking crisis. And the root, the approximate cause for both <clears throat> is an excessive growth of credit, which of course requires a deeper explanation. Now starting with the first, financial to fiscal crisis like in Spain <clears throat> or in Ireland, you've got an excessive growth of credit, which can be detected during this pro problem. It's not always very difficult to say this is too fast. I give you my personal example. When I was the governor of the central bank, we've noticed that the credit denominated in foreign currencies was growing at 30% a year, and we thought it is too, too rapid. <laughs> and we kept a rather restrictive monetary policy and introduced something which is called now macroprudential regulations. Uh, this is a digression. So you have excessive growth of credit, then usually this uh, gave rise to the bust. During the boom, you have very good financial fiscal results. In Spain, there was a surplus, and then everything goes into the reverse. And all of a sudden, you have also a huge uh, fiscal problem. The basic question is, what's behind excessive growth of private credit. The popular cliche is the market failure. It's very fashionable to blame the markets, which are distorted. But if you look at more careful empirical analysis, you see a lot of policies which uh, have contributed to the excessive growth of credit, like, I think, uh, monetary policy of Fed. It was not the only factor, but certainly a contributory factor. By the way, central banks are usually presented as saviors. So the question is, what can the central bank do to constrain the credit booms? While the question is, what can we do to constrain the central banks to fuel the credit booms? This is the right question. And to respond to that, of course, of course you have to go deeper, deeper in the problems which were discussed in the, in the morning. Well, as you know, mortgage subsidies are very, very fa uh, fashionable. Tax regulation favor debt to equity policies, which have led too big to fail, have also contributed to the crisis. There is a number of such policies. And one more policy, which is not listed here. Politicized banking or politicized finance is always dangerous. You, there are enclaves of socialism under capitalism. What are the enclaves? For example, in Spain, which kinds of banks have developed the most problems? Cajas. But Cajas are regionally politicized banks. What about Germany, Landesbanken? What about the US? Two beautiful institutions, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I am not defending those who committed grave errors at the, head of, uh, at the top of uh, huge financial conglomerates, which, by the way, are not a product of markets. They are products of distorted markets by years of too big to fail policies. But I want to say that there are differences in the behavior of politicized versus non-politicized institutions. And the elementary step is to remove politics from the banks as from other enterprises. Okay, 
So at the deeper level, of course, one can discuss what to do with the fraction of reserve banking, what about uh, monetary regime, etc., etc. I will not go into that. I want only to notice that even with the present system, which I am not defending, I'm just saying there are huge differences across time and space. It is not true that crisis, financial crisis, occur with the same frequency during the uh, across countries. There are huge differences, and differences are due, I think, largely to differences in policies, which ultimately have to be explained in the differences in politics. Because behind policies, you have politics. And there's always a need for mobilization to try to stop bad policies and hopefully promote better policies. Now, and is there a problem with the fiscal financial crisis like in Greece? There is a cheap financing and under many conditions, it has led, it leads to excessive spending and public debt. During this process, financial institutions are buying government bank debt, like Greek banks were buying uh, Greek government debt. Then, when the music stops, the fiscal crisis erupts and spills over to the financial institutions. Now, it's easier, I think it's easier to explain what are the root causes. The root causes are bad politics, which, and it is up to the citizens to try to improve policies to make Political competition less destructive, more sensible. Fiscal constraints, I think, would help. One question which I refer to is why there was so much cheap financing to the government? One, why the spreads were so similar on the bonds both of Germany and, uh, and say, Greece? They were suppressed to the level of 30 basis points. In this regard, of huge differences in fundamentals. To some extent, they were masked, but not all of them. So what happened? And I can return to this in a minute. Now, these problems are not specific. <clears throat> uh, let me mention the third problem, which is stagnation. <clears throat> as in uh, Italy, Italy has one, is one of the slowest growing countries for the last 20 years and uh, both in GDP and also uh, if you look at the productivity indicators. And I think behind this disappointing performance, you have accumulation of distortions, which increase transaction costs and uh, reduce competition. <clears throat> so structural reforms uh, are the response. But let me say that these sort of problems are present not only in the Eurozone. You have financial to fiscal boom occurred in Britain, they occurred in the United States, and there is no shortage of countries with flexible rate of exchange arrangements which have accumulated distortions. I am not saying that uh, the Euro was an innocent bystander. I am saying that some problems are more general, that the problems which uh, were present in the Eurozone, which brings me to the question, brings me to two questions. The first one, what would be the links between uh, the Euro arrangements and the fact that some, not all, some countries in the Eurozone tended to develop serious problems? And second, 
what would be the remedies? What are the proposed solutions? On the first issue, very briefly, when I say euro, I have two things in mind. First, design. Second, implementation. It may well be that uh, some design features were correct, but not implemented. Then, of course, you have to look, was it unrealistic to expect that proper design would be implemented? It's just it. So both things. Now, first question again is, to what extent one can blame Euro on the accumulation of distortions in some countries, which were present outside Euro too? In other words, would France, under competitive devaluations, would develop less distortions than in the Eurozone? I don't know. But I would not jump to the conclusion that France or Italy, under a periodical competitive corrective devaluation, would, be, would have a better system. Second, I think one should consider that under conditions of the crisis in some countries, there are substantial reforms. And probably they were not present, they would not have been implemented without the crisis. So I would suggest that if Euro survives, which I think is possible, one would have a longer look. Not only the first 10 years, but a bit longer to see and to compare. But I will grant there is one potential link between uh, uh, Euro and the accumulation of uh, distortions, and this is easy money. For some reason, easy money, easier money was available to private markets and the governments because of the spreads being so much suppressed. And easy money is anathema to reforms. It weakens the policymakers' incentives to reform. So this could be one channel. The question is, is it going to be remedied because of the crisis? Now, what I mentioned brings me to this easy money issues. And I mentioned that it's a kind of a puzzle why spreads were so similar across the Eurozone, what could be the potential reasons and what to do in order to increase the spreads, you know, and this which would tend to strengthen the monitoring by the markets. Well, if you look at gold standard, relative to the Eurozone, you see that periphery in the gold standard was not blessed with such low spreads. They were much higher, probably because there was an exit option. So perhaps there should be an exit option from the Eurozone. Second, I think one should look at modus operandi of European Central Bank, whether the European Central Bank was careful enough in its monetary policy, in the qualification of collaterals. There's a question of target two, which uh, I think without intention serve to some extent to provide cheap finance to countries, delaying adjustment. And of course, there is a flagrant violation of stability and growth pact. <clears throat> so fiscal constraints, in effect, were not in existence. And this would suggest some directions of reforms, which I'm going to mention in a minute. But let me now come to policies which have been pursued since 2007. And there are two distinctions. First, European level versus national level. And in both levels, you could distinguish between policies aiming at crisis management. I think some of these policies have prolonged the crisis. And policies which aim, were aiming at some more lasting effects, like uh, 
preventing future crisis or starting or strengthening the economic growth. Now, I would have very briefly several comments. First, I think there, was, there has been too much rhetoric referring to European solutions, as though there was any European solution for the Italian problems. There are no European solutions for the Italian problems, but there are Italian solutions for the Italian problems. And the same goes for France, and the same goes for other countries, including the large ones, especially the large ones. So too much rhetoric. Second, I think this, there was too much stress on bailing out, meaning providing liquidity or conditional credit, which tends or creates a risk to reduce the incentives to policymakers. And believe me, politicians need incentives. There is never too strong, they are usually too weak and not too strong. <laughs> this is why uh, the incentives coming from other politicians can be distorted. So you need incentives where from, from financial markets. And the, one should be very suspicious of any arrangements which weakens or delays warnings from the financial markets, even though they are imperfect, but they are less imperfect than the politicians because of the incentives issue. And finally, uh, so this is the second issue. And let me make some comments on the monetary problems. Now, one should start, of course, with Fed's policy, which is a huge separate subject. I would, only, I would start with a remark of the last speaker, which have interpreted as, suggested, as suggesting that Fed's policies should be even more expansionary. If, this, if my interpretation is correct, I would strongly disagree. Because this suggestion, I think, is based on an implicit assumption that if you expand the monetary base, automatically you would expand the supply of credit or money, banks' money. So that inside money reacts in an automatic way or fixed way to the expansion of a monetary base. But as we know, there are many reasons why expansion of a monetary base can be accompanied by the shrinkage of credit. And in this case, I think, and even worse, that unconventional monetary policy, by creating uncertainties, especially regarding the exits, may tend to reduce in the longer run in a, the propensity to invest, the, the demand for credit, and may also delay the adjustment. So I would not say that since credit has declined, you will, Fed would have been too even more expansionary. By the way, in the study I referred to, we have found that the dynamics of credit in the Eurozone is not exceptionally disappointing. It is not worse than, say, what has happened under, in Sweden. And more fundamentally, there are studies which suggest that it's not a strong link after the banking crisis between growth and the dynamics of credit. And, and if you want to do something about the credit uh, growth, you have to tackle the fundamental issues. There's no going around, meaning if there are problems in the banks, one has to do something about balance sheet, which I understand ECB tends to invest, to, to tackle. <clears throat> uh, coming up to, uh, there are many reasons why 
on conventional policies is a risk in the longer run. One which is rarely mentioned, I think, is that uh, contrary to what is being said, it may slow down longer-term economic growth by slowing down restructuring, by, by reducing the incentives of the politicians to reform. And one should not rely on the models, which are quoted as a basic for, basis for uh, Fed policies, because these models, to my knowledge, disregard all the negative consequences of continued non-conventional monetary policy. And to make this point even stronger, I would say that this reminds me of the discussion about socialism between uh, von, Mises on the, uh, von Mises and Hayek on the one hand, and Lange on the other hand. And Lange, who was an arch-socialist, even though he was, uh, he was lecturing in, in, uh, in Chicago, was declared a victor. But his victory was exclusively based on a model which uh, ignored all the weaknesses of all the weaknesses of socialism. I think this is an analogy to the models which are based by Fed to say, no, 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 this is all for the good. Otherwise, without our continued policy, growth would suffer. And I've heard Fed officials which said, you complain about our policies, they say it, tell it to Indian or the Brazilian, you shouldn't, because our models show up that you benefit from it. <laughs> because otherwise you would have grown slower and with slower growth would suffer. So this is model fetishism. And I think there's a strict analogy between the discussion of virtues of socialism versus capitalism and the discussion, model-based discussion about uh, virtues of uh, prolong. I am saying prolong unconventional monetary policy, and let me mention that, to some extent, we have a, we have a sort of a dictate of FED. FED is dictating uh, monetary policy in the world. In what way? <clears throat> well, say if ECB tried to resist lowering interest rates or more quantitative easing, there would be growing pressure for ECB to change the course. Why? One, appreciation. And there has been an appreciation in, 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 of euro vis-a-vis -vis dollar. So in this way, I think um, aggressive, non-conventional monetary policy by Fed is a sort of competitive, destructive devaluation. And what would be the consequences in the longer run? What about exit? Is it going to go very smoothly? What about asset bubbles, etc.? One could also always mention that there are technical devices, but technical devices are not sufficient. There is politics behind this too. So, so much to, <laughs> to monetary policy. And if I could finish, do I have some three more minutes? There has been lots of errors, both in actual fiscal policy and in the debates of fiscal policy. And you can find this in this, in this booklet. First, <clears throat> In the first period between 2008 and 2010, countries were urged to engage in the fiscal stimulus, and they did it. And who has done it? Countries which could have could least afford it: Greece, Portugal, Italy. Who urged them to 
stimulate IMF, among other institutions. So the power of the pulpit may be dangerous if it uh, gives rise to wrong messages. Then there was some attempt of fiscal consolidation between 2010-2012, but it has not removed in every case the effects of previous stimulus. And finally, we have this anti-austerity debate. Have you noticed that austerity became a bad word? What is worse than austerity in Europe? Neoliberalism. It's even worse. This is based, this is not an analysis because austerity is defined in such a way that it is hostile to economic growth. So by definition, so since economic growth is a very good thing, you are against austerity because it hurts something which is good. While if you look at the reasons for the differences in economic performance, you don't, you see that, for example, in the case of Greece, it is not austerity per se, but first, delayed adjustment, second, improper composition of the adjustment. Initially, very rigid economy, lots of politicization, very slow structural reforms, and then the fiscal consolidation mostly based on uh, increases in taxes. And even IMF has noticed that. They were warning, they were warning after the fact. So what would we expect from such a fiscal consolidation, such, such a program? Then the cumulative decline in GDP, which hopefully would stop. If you contrast this with other countries, including Ireland, but also the Baltics, you see that more radical uh, expenditure-based fiscal consolidation can reverse a very deep initial decline in GDP. <clears throat> now, the last point. <laughs> what are the most, uh, I think, popular or most often repeated objections or statements regarding uh, problems in the Eurozone, which I am not denying. I am going to this briefly to discuss it. The first one is that uh, monetary policy cannot fit all, that you have independent monetary policy at the country levels, and you need uh, devaluation, otherwise you cannot restore your competitiveness. Now, very briefly, regarding devaluation, you can show that internal devaluation can be made. And it was made in, in the Baltics with certain delays in Greece, Portugal, Ireland, etc. Nobody, I am not denying it's more difficult, but this should not be a surprise. If you enter a hard pack arrangement, you should know that if you developed imbalances and you want to stay in this arrangement, in this group, you have to engage in internal devaluation. And this was done. It was done at a greater cost with countries which have delayed adjustment or have improper structure of adjustment. It was done with a lesser cost in countries which have a better structure and more rapid adjustment. And it was done. I have some comparisons uh, across countries, but I will skip it. This, so it can be done. Second, and more, perhaps more fundamentally, Many people say that, sorry, uh, that Eurozone is a wrong construction 
because monetary union can, on, cannot coexist in the lasting way without a fiscal union or political union. And they take it for granted. I would have the following remarks on that. First, fiscal union is usually not defined. And they do not distinguish between two different meanings. First one, fiscal union would mean federal transfers. Second one, fiscal, second meaning is fiscal union means that you have fiscal rules imposed upon the members of the hard pack area, <clears throat> which is proper. I would say that uh, increased fiscal transfers would not solve the Greece's problems if they were available in the past. They would even contribute to the problems, while stability and growth pact was violated. So my response would be that uh, uh, the Eurozone countries need much stronger fiscal constraints, which cannot be imposed from the top. I think there is much more room needed for monitoring by the markets and by the civil society in the respective countries. What about a political union? It is usually not defined either. It includes fiscal union, but what else? I don't know. But you can hear quite a lot about the necessity of political union. I can only say that even though, even if you think that Eurozone has only one model, which is a model of the US, a federal state, this model is not feasible politically. And I would maintain it's not necessary. But it's enough to say it's not feasible. And even worse, an attempt to move in this direction, to try to increase substantially fiscal transfers would politically backfire. And it is being seen, for example, already in single countries. Look at Spain. And look at Catalonia. Look at Italy. Look at Belgium. There are tensions in these countries largely due to the statements that richer regions are subsidizing poorer regions. The tensions would be even much more intense if an attempt was made at the European Union level. I, my position would be that it is not necessary. So I don't think a dream of more federal Europe is feasible. I don't think it is economically necessary. So what is left? I think we should stop looking for solutions for the Eurozone only in terms of a federal state. We should enlarge our vision and uh, look at the broader concept of hard tech areas, which include such arrangements as gold standard. I'm not saying we should replicate now a code, but broader concept, gold standard, currency boards, Deutsche Mark area, and some multinational currency union which have existed. And we should ask what was behind the success as long as they existed, and how does Eurozone compare to these other examples of hard pack areas? And then I would finish by saying Eurozone so far has been characterized by weak mechanism constraining the growth of the booms. Even worse, some arrangements without intention, I think, might have contributed to the booms. And second, some countries which have entered the Eurozone 
enter it with huge rigidities in uh, product and labor markets, while flexible prices and wages were even more important, are very important under hard tax areas. So the reforms which are needed, and I think to some extent possible, should aim at remedying these deficiencies of the Eurozone. One can say that it is politically very risky, or perhaps impossible. Well, it is very risky. But what are the alternatives? Aiming at federal Europe is non-realistic, and as I said, would not solve the main problem. So I would end with saying that aiming at a very risky option is much better than try to introduce a hopeless option. A very risky option, and this brings me to, and I will end, when I was in charge of Poland's economic reform, I knew I have two options. A hopeless one, delaying the reforms or making it slowly on a small front, and this was hopeless. And only a very risky option, which some people call shock therapy. I am not proposing a shock therapy. I am only saying that this sort of decentralized solution is a risky option, but much better than a hopeless option. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lysik. Uh, we're running uh, a little tight here, uh, so I would love to have him take some questions, but I think we probably have to get to the next panel. Uh, however, uh, if we can keep two questions short, I'm willing to entertain two questions. So, uh, yeah, back here. Yes, absolutely. Um, Bert Ely, a banking consultant. Um, one of the things that uh, uh, weighs in on uh, Europe as well as on the U.S. are bank capital standards, and particularly Basel III and attempts to uh, uh, toughen uh, capital standards and to uh, basically uh, make it uh, set up uh, tougher lo loan standards uh, for banks. What are your thoughts about that in terms of the effect that banking regulation and capital standards have had on Europe's uh, recovery? Well, I am for increasing capital standards and scrapping lots of other standards, including perverse regulation on allegedly non-risky loans to the sovereigns. And there may be some transition effects, but I will accept it. Poland uh, had a more expansionary monetary policy than other European countries. They depreciated their currency against the euro. Poland's nominal GDP grew considerably faster than other European countries, and they had a much milder recession. So what can we learn from Poland's experience? Don't emulate. <laughs> because you have to pay a price if you engage in fiscal stimulus, and now we are facing pretty serious fiscal problems first. Second, I think the more, imp more important reason for Poland avoiding a recession was that we have avoided the credit boom. And we have avoided the credit boom partly because of monetary policy, which was pretty restrictive, and introducing some extra regulations on the supply, on, on the 
credit denominated in foreign currencies. <clears throat> okay? Next.